This is Tax Update for Saturday, September 3rd, 2005. Today's Tax Update deals with the topic of one debt or two S-Corporation basis and its impact on repayments and advances of shareholder debt. Tax Update is intended for tax professionals who are able to independently research their own position and is not intended for those who are not so able to do such research. As well, any position stated on this podcast should be researched and confirmed independently by the tax professional prior to relying on the statements presented. Today we're going to look at a case that came down from the tax court last week, a case that is kind of interesting, and it's a case of Brooks versus Commissioner, and deals with a potential trap that exists in S-corporations and debt. As we are all aware, S-corporations shareholders are allowed to take their losses to the extent of the basis in their stock, and if the basis in the stock is exhausted, to then use up as additional basis offset any debts they have lent to the corporation directly. The S-Corporation shareholders' loans must be directly to the corporation and not guaranteed. That's not our issue here. This is not a third-party guarantee we're going to talk about. However, each debt generally stands on its own. So each debt is reduced independently, and each debt is treated as itself. If the debt is repaid when the basis is less than the face value of the debt, there is a gain recognized by the shareholder. There are special rules under Regulation 1.1367-2 that deal with how we restore basis when there is income in the corporation during the year. As well, there are a couple of rulings that are important here in dealing with what happens when we repay the debt. The case we're going to consider is one that last week dealt with a situation where the taxpayer had both repaid and then later advanced money to the corporation. And this case is to be contrasted with a case from years earlier, the Cornelius case, and we'll study what the differences are there and whether perhaps this case is just a quirk of bad facts from the IRS perspective or the bad uh, a situation where the IRS conceded something perhaps they shouldn't have conceded, or whether in fact this does give us a different fact pattern and changes the way we may view a situation of repayment and readvancing of a debt in the same year. Let's consider the general rule and what goes on in this case. As noted, a shareholder who advances funds to the corporation and then has it offset, when those are later repaid, generally would recognize gain. The nature of the gain, if they're repaid when basis is less than the face value, will depend upon whether or not there is a written note in existence. The IRS, in Revenue Ruling 60. 4-162 held that if there is a written notice of indebtedness, there is a capital gain. The shareholder holds a capital asset. In that case, under Section 1271, 
we have the repayment treated as a partial sale of the, of the debt instrument, a sale of a capital asset. Therefore, depending upon the age of the capital asset, the taxpayer has a capital gain and either a long-term or a short-term capital gain. If there is no written indebtedness, no written evidence of the indebtedness, the IRS held under Revenue Ruling 68.537 and supported by a number of court cases, the nature of the gain is ordinary. The problem in that case is there is no capital asset to be handled in that case. The IRS points out with the lack of a capital asset, you just have regular gain. The gain is ordinary income taxed under Section 1001. For this reason, in many cases, it seems preferable to have the taxpayer execute a note for each advance that will be there. As well, each note and each separate debt under the regulation stands on its own. That is an important fact to note. Regulation 1.1367-2 also holds that all debts that are, treat, that are not evidenced by such notes are considered open indebtedness and treated as a single debt under this multiple debt rule. That becomes crucial in the case in question. Now, let's look at the case in question which is the case involving the Brothers Brooks. We have two taxpayers here involved in this litigation. This is Tax Court Memo 2005-204, filed August 25th of 2005. In this case, we have taxpayers who owned an S-corporation. Basically, the taxpayers advanced funds to the S-corporation in 1997. Each taxpayer advanced the corporation $500,000. The corporation incurred losses, losses that were allocable to each shareholder in excess of their stock basis, and the basis in the debt was therefore reduced. The taxpayers in 1999 repaid the Brothers Brooks $500,000 apiece when the debt basis was let at a point where in 19, at the end of 1998, the debt basis was lower than the face value of 500000 Basically, at the end of 1999, the taxpayers, Mr. Brooks, each advanced the company 800000 In their view, they had restored the 500000 advance that they'd been paid back and then reestablished a $300,000 additional basis. The company sustained additional losses. They deducted those losses, but did not treat the original distribution as a capital gain. In 2000, they advanced the company. In 2000, they were repaid the $800,000 on January 3rd of 2000. Note, just a few days in. They each were repaid on that note, and at the end of 2000, they each advanced the company $1.1 million. As you might suspect, the company continued to show losses, and again they took the position that even though their $800,000 debt, by their accounting, was worth substantial, was at a face value of substantially less than $800,000 at the end of 1999, their repayment at the end of 2002 reestablished debt basis that they could use, so got rid of the gain on the distribution 
and allowed them to deduct the loss. The IRS disagreed with this position and assessed taxes against the brothers for each of the two years in question. The brothers took the case to tax court. The tax court analyzed this case and it becomes key, the question becomes, do you treat this as net advances? Because in each year, the taxpayers at the end of the year were owed more by the company than they had been owed at the beginning of the year. Or do we treat the repayment at the beginning of these years as closing out the transactions and the new advance at the end of the year as being separate loans that are accounted for separately? So the question becomes, in that fact pattern of the IRS, the taxpayers have a lot more basis in the note now, but the taxpayers have significant gains they have paid tax on. The tax court looked at this, and the IRS position in this case, it was taxable, was based on the Cornelius case. Cornelius case, which was a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals case from 1974, cited 74-1 USTC paragraph 9446 or 33 AFTR 2nd 74-1331. In the Cornelius case, we had a situation where the S-Corporation shareholders had each year advanced the company money for its shortfall, and in the early part of the following year, the taxpayers were repaid, and this went on for a number of years. In that case, the tax court, in a reported opinion, 58 TC 417, held that each of those stood alone, and that, in fact, in that situation, there was a gain triggered by the repayment each time because, by the tax court's view, there were separate transactions that continued to occur, that these were truly separate debts because clearly the intent was they did it every year, they were to loan the company money advance that the re-advance would be repaid early the following year. Because of that pattern, the tax court held that each of these advances were independent. This was not an open account where the amounts were drawn up and down and kept fluctuating, but rather they were separate advances and repayments, and they were tied to each other. By that finding, sustained by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the taxpayers had to pay tax on the gain, and the gain was ordinary income to the taxpayers. Again, the gain is ordinary income based upon the problem that there is not a capital asset. At first glance, it certainly appears that the Brothers Brooks have a problem in this case, because initially their fact pattern does not appear radically different from that of the Cornelius case. However, the tax court, in this opinion, held for the taxpayer. Now, the tax court goes to great lengths here to discuss how they differentiated this case from the Cornelius case. And a crucial point to note in this discussion is that the tax court points out the IRS had conceded this under Regulation 1.1367-2, had conceded this was open account indebtedness. And the IRS, according to the tax court, had never taken the position these were separate debts. Based upon that, the tax court went forward and found 
that the proper approach in this situation was to net the transaction. When they netted, they found that each year the brothers had loaned the company more money than the company had owed them at the beginning of the year. Therefore, on a net basis, the debt continued to increase. Therefore, there was no repayment, and therefore, there was no capital gain. The question quickly arises, why was this different? A couple of options become available. First, in this case, the case of Brooks, we are dealing with the current version of the regulation 1.1367-2. That regulation at 1.1367-2a provides essentially for purposes of this section, shareholder advances not, not evidenced by separate written instruments and repayments on advances of an open account debt in parentheses are treated as a single indebtedness. That regulation was issued in 1993. Now, I don't have access at this point to the regulation in place back when the Cornelius case was decided, but it is very possible with the regulation worded that way that you could argue the regulation insists we must treat all open indebtedness as a single debt. There are numerous holdings, and the tax court points out that if there is a single debt in a case like this, we do a net transaction, and the IRS has never argued counter in court. They have not challenged the position, and the tax court did not. So we have a clear holding that if there is one debt, clearly you net. The problem, did the IRS blow this one by effectively conceding this as an open account debt and one debt, instead of arguing that in reality the fact pattern made this into multiple debts? The tax court opinion seems to make it clear that if we had multiple debts, that we would have the result the IRS argued for here with an ordinary gain on the repayment of the debt, followed by a new debt set at a brand new level. Now, the Cornelius Court clearly was reflecting on the exact fact pattern and stating they saw a pattern there of advances and repayment. The court in Brooks is ignoring that issue or not worrying about that issue, concentrating instead on the IRS concession. My take on this is at least reading the opinion in Brooks that the IRS concession may have been the key point. We don't get into the question here as to whether the regulation requires that concession or not. And that is a point the court did not go into deciding how 1367-2 impacted, preferring instead to just live with the concession. So there is an open issue whether this works for you or whether this is just a quirk that the brothers lucked into based upon how the case was litigated. What does this mean for our clients? That's more interesting. A couple of things come to mind. Note, the regulation 1.1367-2 gives us open account debt is one debt. We have to have one debt to be able to use the netting rule. So it has to be the same debt. This could prove problematical 
if you were trying to get capital gain treatment or preserve the option for capital gain treatment and weren't sure the basis would be restored, traditional planning would have told you to go ahead and file and have notes drawn up for each advance. Don't have open account debt because if we trigger a gain, it will be ordinary. While if we have separate debts and we trigger the gain through repayments, we get capital gain treatment. However, I think it is clear that in this case, the answer would have been very different had notes been signed for that advance. If there were notes signed for the advance of funds, then we would have had a real problem in this case. Because with notes advanced, it would have been clear we had multiple debts. The first debt was repaid. There was no income to restore basis. And nothing in the regulations suggests we could restore that basis by paying cash back in on a new debt. So we're caught between a rock and a hard place. We couldn't get to the Brooks answer if we had had the note that would have allowed them capital gain treatment. But there's a second problem. The question also becomes, if we look at the Cornelius case, and now we take the case we have here, and if open account debt stays open, if we can keep it as one transaction, does that argue against fully repaying the debt, but potentially leaving some number in the debt during the year to treat this as a single open account and forestall any IRS claim that this are, these are separate transactions? Perhaps the brothers would have been smarter to have left a twenty or $30,000 balance. Who knows how large the balance needs to be to make it separate? but perhaps it would have been a smarter move to, to have left something there as opposed to taking the full repayment. Cornelius was not overturned, so we still have a case where Cornelius could apply. We have to counsel and be careful here and warn clients of how this works. The problem which we have is clients need to be very, very leery of repaying debt once the basis has been used up. If we have had to offset debt basis, a client who repays that debt faces a problem. If they fully repay the debt, we may have a Cornelius issue. In fact, even with the Brooks holding, we may have no protection if the IRS does not concede that it is one debt and it seems to me very possible the IRS will not concede that point in a future case, that they will hold the problem here was the concession of a single debt, and that in the future they will hold it as multiple debts and argue the case in that manner. The tax court opinion virtually seems to invite that. As well, you need to consider that you should have any repayments should probably be deferred until the end of the year, when you can determine if there will be sufficient income to restore basis and what the impact will be. It appears to be very dangerous to pay it back and then hope to be able to make it up at year end, especially if you pay back the entire debt, but perhaps arguably even if you pay back most of the debt. In essence, is there some point at which the IRS could still argue that the whole nature of it, if you just left a minor amount there for no good reason, that in fact it was still two transactions, substance over form. Next, if, however, you take the position that the Brooks case is 
actually good law, and in fact it should be treated as one, you may want to check any computations your tax software made. Many tax software packages most likely have applied their test using the Cornelius assumption that repayments, if the debt was repaid during the year, you must fully report that repayment and treat that in computing your gain, or if you have taken that position. There may be claims for refund here as well. There may be some argument that this could provide authority if you had a situation where the taxpayer had repaid their open account during the year and then we discover the corporation lost money even though the taxpayer believed it was going to earn money so that we have to so we're going to try to restore it year in this could provide you with at least enough argument to take the position there is no gain again our issue is going to be if challenged on exam did we have a reasonable basis for the position there is at least some argument here now that the Brooks case would give us the reasonable basis for that position, at least unless the Brooks case is later overturned or the Brooks case gets in front of the IRS under a different fact pattern. Again, we get another similar case where the IRS does not concede that it is a single debt and litigates the question, and we have a holding that it would not be a single debt if it's repaid and there's a pattern. Most importantly, though, I think we need to counsel our clients to avoid the fact pattern. While the Brooks won, the Brooks would have been better off had they never gotten to this position. In the case in question, the corporation continued to lose significant sums of money every year. It would appear that the smart move would have been not to repay the debt, then go back out and relend it every December, but instead, if the corporation was going to need these funds, that we would go ahead and leave the debt in place, or at a very minimum, at least not repay the whole thing. Finally, we may need to discuss with clients the advisability given the Brooks decision as to whether or not a loan will be documented, depending upon whether or not it is likely they will try to restore basis using a Brooks-type transaction at year-end. Again, taxpayers need to argue that if we leave open the option to do a Brooks restore the basis structure at the end of the year and hope that works, that we have now opened ourselves up to, if we're wrong, we have ordinary gain. That could be a real problem for a taxpayer with a large capital loss carryover, or a taxpayer who might have had a long-term debt that was on that open account and who's turned around now and cashed it in, would have had long-term capital gain at 15%, now faces ordinary income at 35% on that gain. These are all issues that you need to consider when you look at these cases in the Brooks case and similar cases. Finally, it's important to always remember that debt in an S corporation is always a tricky item to deal with. Clients need to be warned that debt in an S corporation requires careful planning, that they should not repay that debt without informing you and talking with you prior to such repayment, and that if at all possible, we should defer repayment until year end when we can determine if that amount can be repaid without a negative tax consequence. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, 
September 3, 2005. Tax update is intended for tax professionals who can independently research their own tax position. This podcast can be copied freely and used as long as no fee is charged for the use of the podcast or any related materials. The materials related to this, which will include the court cases we've talked about here, will be available at the ezollers.libsyn.com website or by going to www.edzollerstaxupdate.com, which will redirect you to that site. You can download the materials. They will be in a PDF format. This has been Tax Update for September 3, 2005.